welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to another episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection. Today we're going to be talking all things navigating fussy eaters and our guest today is Dr. Amy Lovell. Amy has completed her PhD research in nutrition at the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, just across the ditch for those of us in Australia, in 2019. She's currently working there as a lecturer, where she coordinates the food science and nutrition course and lectures students from science, nursing and dietetics. Amy is a New Zealand registered dietitian and an accredited practicing dietitian in Australia and has a particular interest in early childhood nutrition and making sure that children have the best start to a lifetime of eating, which... I think that's just the best job in the world. Um, During her PhD, her research was part of a broader project in collaboration with the University of Queensland, and it was around the Growing Up Milk Light trial. Amy's focus was to study the effect of a growing up milk in children aged one to two years, and specifically the effects on dietary patterns, nutrient intake, overall diet quality, and nutritional status. Amy also has a casual role at Starship Child Health, where she works in paediatric oncology. And a particular interest of hers is fussy eating during the toddler years, and she completed the SOS approach to the feeding workshop. So in this podcast, we're going to discuss the latest evidence in fussy eating. I ask Amy about how do we interpret and translate the findings into clinical practice? Where is the research leading us? And Amy discusses how and when picky eating manifests in children, what are some of the potential causes, and when is there a need for intervention, both from our role as a dietitian and also from the role as a parent or carer. We also chat about how fussy eating can be addressed using best clinical practice to promote healthy eating habits in young children. And I'd like to thank Nutrisha for supporting today's podcast episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Amy. It's lovely to connect with you again. I know we met at FINSI a couple of years ago. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, we did. We met, I think it was 2018. Yeah. Yes. Uh, got a chance to see Washington, D.C., which was very fun. It was. And thankfully... Um, it's not this year because it, as mm. most of you will know, has been um, cancelled for 2020 due to COVID and just checking in how you've been managing during COVID in New Zealand. New Zealand seems to have done a fantastic job. We have, um, I think, you know, initially, you know, lockdown wasn't fun for anyone, um, mm. but I think it's been amazing to see how much we've worked as a team, as a country to allow us to kind of almost be back to normal here well it's just very not normal in the rest of the world so I feel very grateful yeah I'm just a big fan of Jacinda Ardern um yay for women leaders I say yeah (laughs) she's a strong woman and um a calm woman Mm -hmm. uh, in in face of a lot of different crises she's faced yeah very admirable so Mm. let's start and if you could tell us a little bit about yourself Amy um where did you study why did you want to become a dietitian Sure. So I started off my science journey in Auckland. I did a Bachelor of Biomedical Science at Auckland Uni. Um, I originally wanted to be a medical doctor, um, but we all know how competitive that is, and I wasn't successful. 
so I finished the biomedical degree and just sort of didn't really know what to do. So I went to London, had an aha moment in London. Um, I realized that actually a dietitian would be something I really was quite interested in. I'm very passionate about cooking and um, I'm a bit of a sort of a, my friends call me a feeder because I love to cook for my friends and, and bake especially. Yeah. So I looked into that. Um, it wasn't offered much in New Zealand when I looked into it back in 2009 um, and I ended up actually applying to University of Sydney and getting a place there in their program. So I did my master's there um, and then as part of my uh, master's sort of thesis research component I ended up doing some research back in New Zealand with uh, Claire Wall, Professor Claire Wall and um, started our research relationship there and, and she's actually the one that um, enticed me to do the PhD. So yeah, Auckland, Sydney, back to Auckland for my sort of pathway, I suppose. So um, how did she entice you to do your PhD? Like what, what did that look yeah, like? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the she's such an inspiring woman um, and I just learned so much in that sort of six months of research in my master's when I was um, working out of UCID and uh, she just must have seen a bit of potential maybe there and offered me a, a PhD project that was sort of already established. Um, it wasn't even something I ever considered. I hadn't seen myself going into academia at all, mm. into research even. My heart was set on being a paediatric dietitian. Mm. Uh, initially, if I could have stayed in Sydney, it would have been to work at either Sydney Children's or um, Children's Hospital at Westmead. Mm -hmm. um, but I ended up, yeah, being enticed by this project. It's in early life nutrition. I was going to be working in collaboration with some really key players in the field. Um, I was going to get some really good skills in terms of being a researcher as well and, and running clinical trials. So. I took the chance and moved back home and started a four-year PhD journey. Well done. And so you finished that last year, right? Yeah. I, yeah. So I handed in in 2018. I yeah. sat the exam okay. in March last year and graduated. Oh, congratulations. Year. Yeah, thank you. And so being fairly recent, do you have any advice for dietitians who are wanting to pursue research um, or for those who are currently undertaking research and all their PhD? What are your wise words of wisdom for them? <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I know in Australia that there are a lot more dietitians that do think of research as an option, do think of a PhD as an, a sort of a viable next step following that master's. In New Zealand, I think we're a bit sort of further behind in terms of the uptake of dietitians doing research and, and going on and doing PhDs, but there is such value in having dietitians going and doing research. Mm -hmm. You know, we are an evidence-based practice. That's how we, that's how we work. And if we, uh, you know, I think it's very valuable being, being able to contribute to the evidence that we are mm -hmm. actually going forth and, and sort of disseminating and, and being part of learning new things, um, such, such a value to, be a, to go into research as a, a dietitian. And I, you don't even have to do that as a PhD. You can still do research within a clinical role. Um, you know, if you are someone doing a, a PhD, I think it's definitely very important to find something that you're going to love for four years. Mm -hmm. So a couple of my colleagues from Sydney have um, asked some advice 
sort of from a PhD perspective. And that's the biggest thing is find something you're going to really still be passionate about in four years time and also find a supervisor and a supervisory team that's going to inspire you, but also support you through some really um, challenging aspects of a PhD. It's the toughest thing I've ever done. That's always my biggest tip. Make sure you have a great supervisory team because that's either going to yeah. make make it or break it for you, I think. Very much so. And I've seen a lot of the breaking mm-hmm. with that dynamic. And um, I feel very lucky with the journey that I had. Yeah, it sounds like you've had a great supervisory support team there. I really did. Yeah. What do you think are some of the benefits? Like, has there been any value beyond what you've talked about there in having a PhD? Is it having a PhD. in greater standing with the healthcare team or...? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, Australia is a little bit more ahead of the game in terms of incentivizing a dietitian to get a PhD. Um, it does it does sort of allow you to have that sort of, sort of seniority edge on a clinical scale in Australia compared to New Zealand. But I think that's starting to change. And I think with more dietitians that do it here at home, um, we will see that sort of shift in... Um, sort of seniority within the clinical setting because historically clinical dietitians haven't had PhDs. Mm. It's interesting, you know, when your clinical colleagues from other medical professions uh, find out you're doing a PhD and you sort of might be seen in a bit of a different Mm -hmm. light, which is a bit ridiculous. Um, But in terms of doors that it's open for me, I never, ever thought that I would be in academia. Um, I've been successful in getting a role as a lecturer here in the discipline of nutrition. yeah, I'm, I've, I'm involved in some amazing research projects. Um, and yeah, I just, it's, it's a path I never thought I was going to take. And I feel very, sort of very lucky that I'm able to get all these different opportunities while still having actually a really good supportive team because my PhD supervisor is now my boss. So I've sort of stuck with her. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how, yeah, you you haven't envisioned something and a path just takes you down a certain journey. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've still been able to work um, as my dream as a paediatric dietitian clinically, and I'm still able to do that and factor that into my role as an academic. Um, That was something that was very um, sort of central to me getting the role was the relationship that I had clinically. So I think as a dietitian working clinically, you, you use that to your advantage Um, to collaborate with maybe universities and other academics because you're sort of at the forefront. You see the, you know, the day-to-day, the things that actually need finding out. Um, Whereas, you know, there is that sort of joke about how academics can can become quite detached from reality and sort of a bit tunnel vision. So I think as a clinician and also being involved in research has its uh, real advantage. I think that combination is just fantastic and I used to Not have... Not a lot of people have no, it. No, no. I, I was fortunate to work with a few at the hospital when I was um, at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. But, it, yeah, if you can get those two together, I think it's just magic. Mm. So tell us a little bit more about the fussy eating research that you've done and what you're currently working on. Yeah, so obviously having only finished last year, I'm very, very early career researcher. Um, and, uh, you know, just with the environment this year, it's been very difficult to get projects off the ground and grants have been few and far between. Um, but in terms of fussy eating research, I haven't been involved Uh, directly in fussy eating research. I think more from a clinical perspective, I've been involved with children that are fussy eaters and working with them from a um, sort of more that 
sort of sequential oral sensory approach to eating. Um, so from a clinical perspective, I've been involved um, sort of at that coal face of, of fussy eating and working with parents. In terms of uh, further research, you know, I, there is the problem with this space is that there isn't a lot of research into um, this particular group of children and and sort of throughout that early lifespan. And, you know, when you when you go and do the training to do with the, the um, K2Me over in, a, who's an American and invented the sequential orosensory SOS approach to feeding, one of the big things she stresses is the fact that there isn't a lot of research in this space, definitely not a lot of really robust clinical trials. A lot of it's really um, sort of observational, kind of longitudinal, sort of just watching to see what happens to young children as they grow through life. Mm -hmm. You know, we do have our big um, New Zealand, uh, growing up in New Zealand uh, sort of cohort that we're following um, and and, the, and we sort of collect dietary behaviours in terms of sort of behaviours around food and parents' perception of children's behaviours around food and, and whether or not we can kind of deduce what's going on in the population there. That data hasn't been looked into yet, but it's definitely something I'm interested in. And then working with families through things like food schools, which is something I would love to establish here at the university. We've got a very well-functioning one up at another university in North Auckland and you know this is a population group that falls through the cracks from an acute setting these children don't get to see people in you know dietitians in hospital um, they don't get to be referred through for community support of a dietitian um, at home and these yeah these these kids often fall through the cracks so it's it sort of relies on these sort of food schools that we don't really have um, and that's an area I'd really love to get involved in um, but yeah so very early, early research, yeah. Yeah. How is the food school funded? Is that government funded? No, no. So the up at um, Massey University in um, sort of North Auckland, they have a food school called Active Eating. It's actually facilitated by one of their speech therapists, but also has um, sort of the nutrition dietetic component in there. They do kind of build it into their clinical programs. Uh, so students can work within the setting too, do some research and work with families um, and so it is sort of funded more on like a, um, you know, when, with the clinical programs, when you build in like a sort of public clinics that are not as expensive as seeing, say, a dietitian privately, um, but they do have a cost associated with them just to kind of meet the costs of the clinic. Mm. But unfortunately, we don't have um, any sort of government funded sort of facilities there. Mm. The only really thing we used to do at Starship was a sort of a tube weaning reintroduction to solid eating um, sort of food school type scenario. Mm. Um, but even then, you know, the, the funding for that isn't continual. Mm. It's all based on business cases mm. and it's tricky. So I can tell your passion for this area. How did you become so passionate about child nutrition and fussy eaters? Um, I just find them fascinating. I, um, it's almost like a little puzzle. I, I never really can, or I haven't yet been able to figure out, you know, what's going to make one child um, have a completely normal eating experience versus what's going to make another child have very, very different, very sort of um, maybe even negative eating experience. You know, we, we, when I was growing up, my mum 
is amazing. And she used to <laughs> tell me that I couldn't leave the table unless I'd finished all my food or if I finished my dinner, I would get dessert. And those are things that we really encourage our parents not to do now. And, you know, the, the, there is some research around the, the detrimental impact of those sort of phrases and using food as a um, sort of contingency prize and how that impacts a child. And I'm fascinated by some children that doesn't affect them at all and some children it does and what is it that makes that what is the difference um yeah. so it's really for me it's like a, a puzzle um and you know i am very passionate about early life nutrition and we all know the audience that i'm talking to preaching to the choir we know that these these early years sort of one to three years of age we know that that's where fussy eating typically starts to rear its head but we also know that these are such formative years in terms of building these really healthy eating habits, exposing them to such good variety of foods and that dietary diversity. Um, and so these two kind of things compete against each other. You know, we know that we need to optimize it, but sometimes we just can't. Um, so for me, it's about trying to see how we optimize these first years to then have that knock-on effect of, of a life, of full life of health. Mm. Um, and I think we have a really unique role as dietitians. Um, we've got, you know, these amazing sort of counselling skills, these patient-centred um, sort of models of care, sort of motivational interviewing um, that really help because it's not, you're not dealing with the child, you're dealing with parents. And we've got um, these skills to really educate parents on on what's expected, what's normal, and and sort of, sort of try and draw back a lot of these parents' ridiculous expectations of what their children should maybe be doing. So I, I find it all very, very challenging. Um, I think it's very different from some of the research, the other research that I'm involved in. Um, and obviously it's very different from, from teaching. And it's also very different from the clinical component where I work mainly in oncology. So it just sort of adds a really nice piece to the puzzle, but um, you, teaching parents about food and one thing I learned from my PhD, and, and these were, you know, the mums, amazing mums that participated and dads um, for a year with their child from one to two, is that a lot of the time it really boils down to the fact that we actually just really need to educate parents on what's appropriate for a young child, um, because I think sometimes that knowledge isn't there. So we are very, very crucial as dietitians, and I like the that we are central to the role of, of managing these children. I love your analogy of a puzzle there and, you know, it yeah. just sounds so individualised. Mm. How would you define fussy eaters then? And is there a way to identify and categorise children or is it just so in individuals, um, you know, to then determine what's the most appropriate nutrition intervention? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are so many different terms for fussy eating. So you've got like fussy eaters, picky eaters, fatty eaters, you know, there's so many different um, synonyms for the same sort of umbrella kind of terminology. There are some really common characteristics of fussy eaters. So we, we know to look out for those and we know that fussy eaters cause a whole layer of stress and additional stress to families. Um, and it is a really complex problem. So that whole puzzle um, kind of concept is that you are trying to put many pieces together to try and get the eating 
process to go smoothly for the child. So there's lots of different definitions that float about. Um, the sort of most recent definition came out of a review in 2008 by Dovey and colleagues. And they've reviewed, they reviewed all the literature and they've come up with a definition defining fussy eaters as children who consume an inadequate variety of foods, either through rejection of a substantial amount of foods that are familiar um, to them, as well as foods that are unfamiliar to them. So that's the sort of classical definition. And then trying to identify children that are actually classified as that, because you know, there is a very normal physiological level of fussiness that will happen in a child as they go from transitioning into that complementary feeding phase through to the family diet and then sort of progressing to eating um, sort of the normal dietary patterns that we sort of advocate as a sort of a healthy diet um, on a sort of population country level. So you have to, I think, definitely uh, get parents to identify their expectations and how they define fussy eating as well. Because, you know, some parents say, oh, my child eats nothing. And you're like, well, could you actually list the things that your child eats? And the number of foods they say are actually quite vast and can be worked with really, really easily. And it's not as dire as, as originally thought. Um, whereas there are other children where parents say that and you're like, wow, they really only eat 10 foods. That's, yeah. that's nothing. Where you can sort of count on both your hands. Yeah. That's really where you can start to see, yes, that's, but they both parents would call their children fussy. Yeah. So it's about ex, sort of managing expectations and creating those sort of guidelines around um, what actually fussy eating is. And also I think um, as we are sort of, sort of talking about the space a lot more and, and recognizing um, the sort of difference in sort of spectrum of these fussy eating children is actually recognizing whether or not the child is just sort of um, going through some stages of, of normal development, whether or not there is sort of a fussy eating problem um, and, or whether or not there is actually that medical diagnosis of that avoidant, um, avoidant restricted food intake disorder, so ARFID, mm -hmm. which is an actual medical diagnosis recognized under the um, eating disorder DSM-V5, DSM-5. Um, and, you know, that is a whole nother ball game. Um, so it's about sort of teasing out and actually really figuring out what you're sort of starting with. Um, and that ARFID is something, you know, you've got less than 10 foods. Um, there are many factors that impact these children's ability to eat foods and it's very, very extreme. And that's where you get that risk of nutritional deficiencies um, and negative health effects that happen in these children. So there's that level of really sort of low level food neophobia. So that fear of new foods, which is very, very normal for children in early life. Um, or we do have you know, common things that we can look out for and, and sort of think actually, yes, we might need to do a bit of an intervention is where we've got children that, um, you know, where growth is starting to be affected. So we, as dietitians, we track growth. It's an assessment of whether or not children are getting adequate energy and obviously um, adequate protein as, as well in terms of being able to grow predictably. Um, and when we start to see that, um, that growth being affected either by weight or weight and length or height. So that faltering kind of coming into to play, you know, then we know that there's actually something wrong if we've got some overt nutrient deficiencies, um, looking at nutritional bloods like iron, vitamin D, 
zinc, um, looking, yeah, looking for those sorts of signs. Um, children that are taking really, really long time to eat. So children that take over sort of 40 minutes to an hour to eat meals, then you might think, yes, there's a problem. So there's lots of different questions you can ask, I think, as the dietitian to really tease out whether or not it's something that we just need to reassure parents is normal, something that's actually sort of impacting on key parts in early childhood development, like growth um, or creating overt nutrient deficiencies, or whether or not it's something bigger that's actually that medical diagnosis mm. of ARFID. So there's quite a few variables to kind of take into consideration there. Would it be fair to say then that there is a significant number of what you would call a normal level of fussy eating then within children? Yeah, and it's really figuring yeah, the, the difference sure. between that and the more extreme. Yeah, and I think that would definitely guide your, your intervention as well as a clinician. Mm-hmm. So based on the evidence then, what do we know about the impact of fussy eating on children's growth and development as well as their nutritional status? You started to touch on a few things there yeah. in terms of growth. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like I said, the big ones are where we start to see um, the impact on, on weight and length and height, um, depending on the, the child's age. Obviously, those would require um, slightly more intensive nutrition interventions um, because we know the impacts of, of faltering growth on a child in these formative years and that sort of that knock-on effect of, um, of that clinical picture later on in life. Um, we, you know, nutritional def- deficiencies, overt nutritional deficiencies like iron and vitamin D, we know those are two really crucial nutrients that um, a lot of children under the age of three are actually iron deficient or vitamin D deficient. A lot of parents don't realize it because it's not something we routinely test for if the child appears to be healthy and, and not sort of struggling with things like fussy eating. So, um we, we know that the impact of being low in, in iron on sort of the cognitive side of things um, and vitamin D in terms of immune health, bone health. So those are the evidences there that having those nutritional deficiencies um, are, have negative health consequences. Obviously with growth, negative health consequences later on. Um, so that, you know, there is a lot of... Um, evidence there in terms of not just in fussy eaters, just in early childhood. Um, And then we know that there is evidence for those children who maybe are just exhibiting quite sort of predicted responses to new food and that food neophobia. We've got a lot of evidence there that speaks to the role of repeated exposure of foods um, in young children. And, you know, the sort of more toddler age they're getting, the more exposures that we need to, to potentially um, give of a single food for them to be accepting of it. And we, you know, we know that a lot of these children, kind of all these parents say that they've got these kids that have these beige diets. But if you think about all of the beige foods, they are really kind of safe foods. They're just really nondescript. Most of them are a little bit highly processed, a bit more on the tasty side. Um, they're safe. So they're going to gravitate towards them. From a like an anthropological point of view, mm-hmm. back in the day yeah. when we didn't know everything that we know, bitter foods meant poison, poison meant death, and you avoided it because you wanted to not die. So um, a lot of our veggies are, are bitter. So it's kind of like that innate sort of uh, response that we've got to foods from a long time ago um, that sense. we have to overcome. Yeah. yeah. So what role do you believe that dietitians can play then in fussy eating and comparing that to the parent and the, or the carer role, do you think? 
Yeah. Um, so I think dietitians are so valuable in this setting. I also think that there is uh, a real acknowledgement for the role of um, so an MDT, so multidisciplinary approach to these children. A lot of these sort of feeding schools and food schools coming out of America, the one that we run up in Auckland, um, they have, it's a multidisciplinary team. So we've got speech therapists, we've got dietitians, we've got psychologists. Sometimes if you're able to, you've got an occupational therapist and we all have our different strengths. So I think as a dietitian, obviously we've got the ability to really thoroughly assess diet and dietary adequacy in terms of nutrients. Um, you know, we've got the knowledge that there are these nutrients at risk that are in this age group of young children. You've got your iron, your vitamin D, your omega fatty acids, calcium sometimes. Um, we, we know the sort of uh, the physiological reasons for why we need these uh, nutrients in our diet, especially when we're in these formative years. So we can assess very easily for nutritional deficiencies. We can assess growth as a dietitian. Um, we think we've got very good acknowledgement of our scope of practice. So we know where maybe some um, occupational therapy involvement can be quite helpful for the children that have got a sensory component to their fussy eating um, to build in activities that kind of ground these children and get them ready for eating. Um, we've got speech therapists who can, who can assess the eating process. Sometimes a child sort of... Um, uh, oromotor development isn't actually matched to their chronological age. So we may as parents be giving our children food that actually they're sort of not actually able to handle in their mouth. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about, you know, assessing whether or not we're providing food in appropriate forms for children. Maybe that's the barrier and um, that's creating the fussy eating. So that multidisciplinary approach is really important. But from a dietetic point of view, we've got so many different skills in terms of meal planning for parents. The big thing is um, getting parents to understand what their role is and what the child's role is. So from a parental perspective, um, when you were asking about the difference between a dietitian and, and parent, it's really about getting the parent to decide who's in control of the situation. Because more often than not, you're speaking to um, parents. I mean, I'm not a parent myself yet. And I find it sometimes that can be a bit of a barrier mm -hmm. trying to tell parents how to parent um, that you do obviously have to do that with very great care and mm -hmm. <laughs> delicacy. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we, we sort of get to sort of get the parents to decide, are you the parent in control or is the child in control? When they come to us more than often than not, it is the child that's in control. And it's about giving the parents the confidence to actually gain control of the situation. So we can give them tips about meal planning so they're not pre preparing more than one meal a night. And actually sort of modif not mo yeah, modifying uh, the family meal to potentially address some of the um, preferences of the child, but not uh, cooking a whole separate meal. So giving them confidence in that meal planning and meal adapting, um, getting uh, sort of a lot of the big thing about that repeated exposure and children not eating food you prepare is that really that consciousness about the fact that we're wasting food. I think, you know, especially now when we talk about food waste, um, from a sustainability point of view, um, and all of the food that we throw out every year, we're very, very cognizant of that now, um, giving parents the skills to know what to do with food that's not eaten, managing food waste, I think as dietitians, it's very much in our skill set. 
And then there's a component of, of teaching, say parents have goals of wanting their child to eat, you know, their own, their child only eats chicken nuggets and you actually really want the child to eat, you know, roast chicken or something by the end of it. And so as a dietitian, what we can do is we can work with the families to do something called food chaining. Um, and it's a skill that you can learn within their SOS course. And basically it's getting the child to go from those chicken nuggets mm -hmm. through staged um, sort of very sequential um, steps of, of food choices to finally end up at that uh, chicken breast or, or, or roast chicken. So we've that I think as a dietitian, that's where we um, are really, really beneficial to families is we um, can give parents the confidence that their child is is having an adequate diet, mm -hmm. um, you know, that they are meeting all of the dietary requirements for their age. More often than not, these children will be meeting the energy and protein requirements just because of the food types that they are partial to. But we know that the foods that are mo more often rejected are your fruits and veggies. So it's the, the micronutrients that are those uh, nutrients that are really at risk in this setting. So that's where we can work with them. And in terms of um, parents, you know, like I said, it's that division of responsibility. Alan Satter has great resources involved, with, you know, in that sort of um, area, getting the parents to understand, you know, you as the parent decide what is being served for dinner, when it's being served, sort of time of day and where it's being served. So at the dining room table, or if you've got one, um, and the child's responsibility is to decide how much they're going to eat of it. And I think really defining those roles in families is, is really, really good and getting parents to understand that they are in the driving seat, um, that they do have the control and giving them the confidence it's such a stressful, stressful situation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I find it really helpful with families is, um, you know, when you've first seen them is actually getting them to record what a dinner time or a meal time looks like for them. So they don't have to try and explain it mm -hmm. in terms of role play or whatever. Mm -hmm. So actually getting some video evidence of what's going on. Hopefully they're not going to change any behaviors because mm -hmm. they're being videoed. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's really helpful because you can kind of sit down and, and actually step through things and be like, hey, what's going on here? Or what are you thinking? And what do you think's made your child sort of react like that to the situation? So you can kind of really break it down and, and start to think of how you would implement some of the strategies within that sort of meal setting. It's a great idea. Um, and you've talked about how it's such a stressful situation and it's high anxiety and obviously parents are really concerned about the situation. How do you think the nutrition interventions can capture not only the nutritional needs of the child, but also those sort of psychosocial needs of both the parent and the child? Would there be anything else you'd add? I know you covered yeah, a lot. I think, you know, from like a, um, obviously that multidisciplinary approach, if there's need, you can add in some, some sort of psych psychological sort of approach to some of the, uh, interventions that you might implement. Um, it's still got to be fun. It's still got to be a learning experience. So um, giving, obviously you don't want parents to think they're doing anything wrong. I think that's a really big thing to try and avoid is that sort of potential for shaming, shaming on, yeah. yeah. And I think that, I mean, you obviously, you might end up ruining your relationship with the family if that happens. Um, Cause rapport is obviously super, super important. Um, and actually turning it into fun learning occasions. So it might be that learning about and accepting new foods isn't done at a main meal. 
So it's it's about choosing your timing for cho- for introducing or, or working on things. So maybe snacking time might be a bit more um, sort of amenable to a challenge like introducing a new food or trying something different. Um, or maybe, you know, if the child is a bit older, just, you know, we've got our new food day, which is Sunday or whatever, on our new food plate. So taking that, so it's that threat um, that heightens the anxiety response. And we know that that fight or flight adrenaline pulse um, plays a huge role in dampening down our appetite as well. So if we feel threatened as a child, we're not going to want to eat because of that response that we have. And I think with parents and, and as working with parents, it's thinking about actually if I was the child and this was being implemented on me, how would this make me feel? Mm. Um, getting children involved in the actual food and decision-making process. A lot of families tend to hide vegetables and things. And if you get caught hiding <laughs> veggies in a bolognese sauce by a Watch fussy out. eater, you are never going to get them eating bolognese sauce ever again they're deeply suspicious of you um, and very lose that trust of, of the food that you're providing is actually what you're saying is there so that involvement is super crucial too you know there are there are occasions and I think that's where it's important as a dietitian once you've done your nutritional assessment whether or not you might find that there is a potential for these um, deficiencies and these crucial nutrients that we know are a problem in our general popula- population, not just our fussy eating population. Um, so our iron, our calcium, our vitamin D, there may be a role and a very short-term role, I think is something to really stress, um, is for some nutrition support, some oral nutrition support. So whether or not that is something like a, you know, like a toddler milk or growing up milk, because we know it is fortified with iron, we know it is fortified with vitamin D, um, whether or not that is built into your intervention, if appropriate. And I think one of the big things uh, we need to avoid is letting parents think that by adding in that product, you're just covering, you're creating that parachute for nutritional deficiencies. That's not the point of them. It's a very short-term intervention that you need to build alongside all of those skills, like introducing new food and diversifying the diet. So there is a a space for um, oral nutrition support in the setting. Um, But as dietitians, I think it's our responsibility to give families the ability to, um, and confidence to provide their children with a varied diet and one that is reflective of of a really healthful dietary pattern. Um, Because we want this for lifelong health, right? And we can't, we don't have adults drinking toddler milk. So um, it's a very short-term intervention um, to try and cover some of those nutritional deficiencies. And then you work on foods that are going to provide those nutrients alongside it. So what sorts of outcomes do you think dietitians should be looking at, you know, with their nutrition interventions then, which might incorporate Mm. the toddler milks? You know, what, what should they be measuring in terms of the effectiveness of these interventions? Yeah. I mean, it depends obviously on the sort of screening situation where you've defined the child as a fussy eater and that that it actually needs an intervention. So if it's growth, that's something that's been affected, obviously regular measurements of growth, weight and height and and looking at um, sort of Z scores and and change on those growth charts is really important. Um, Nutritional deficiencies, if they've been uh, captured in 
uh, a blood test, obviously being on uh, sort of onto it with the and corresponding with the GP to get those regularly tested if able, although they are little people and they're not partial to having a blood test <laughs> too often. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, if you are working on things like that food chaining, um, as where you're trying to go from one food to a slightly more healthful option, um, it's sort of creating charts to measure progress and creating goals um, and working with families to create goals that are going to work in with their daily life. I think one of the biggest things with families is to stress, you know, depending on where on the spectrum this fussy eater is, it is a lot of work, a lot of work and it's intensive. It requires the whole family. You've got role modeling that's important. You've got meal times that are important as learning occasions. You've got food preparation that's important. Um, you've got all of the language that we use around food at the dinner table, the, the, the language that we use when getting people to try new things. It's very intensive. Mm. And I think it's getting that understanding from families that it's going to take a bit. Mm. Um, mm. So creating goals that they think they can achieve mm. because people are results oriented. Mm. So if you give them uh, charts that look at food chaining and you tick boxes that, yes, we got mm. there and mm. yes, she swallowed it, uh, the chicken piece and, or no, they licked mm. it. And, but that's okay because yeah. they didn't lick it last week. I think if we have these small measurable steps, I was going to say baby um, steps. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, with every dietetic approach, we don't just go big or go home. Mm. We are small measurable steps that overall, when we step back, are actually a really big change. Mm. So taking us back to your PhD, which was on growing up milk and the effect of this on dietary patterns, nutrient intake and nutritional status of in toddlers. Could you tell us a bit mm. more about this topic and how you think the role of growing up milks uh, are in this space? Yeah, sure. So I suppose it speaks a bit to what I was saying before. Um, so my my research was really interested in looking at, you know, these were healthy children. They We didn't ask if parents thought of them as fussy eaters, but it was an intervention trial. So we weren't going to provide any dietary advice. It was really just the intervention was the toddler milk, looking at the differences between children that drink cow's milk versus toddler milk. Um, I think one of the big things that came out of my PhD was a lot of the time parents aren't aware of the fact that there is a guideline for cow's milk in children. Um, and it's, you know, there's a reason behind it. Um, in New Zealand, especially, you know, we're a dairy industry. Um, we all know that milk is, we're sort of brought up to, to sort of think that milk is an excellent sort of option, providing lots of nutrition. So, you know, families, often do provide children with excessive amounts of milk in hoping that they're giving them some nutrition. But education around the fact that that displaces appetite, it can increase the risk of iron deficiency. Knowledge around dietary guidelines was one of the big things that came out of my PhD. And also, you know, these were a relatively health literate audience. Um, so even in that setting, there was a little bit of lack of knowledge around actually what are the guidelines for, for, for young children. We don't have a much um, in terms of population data on what our children are eating under two. Uh, our sort of nutrition surveys start from two and upwards. So it's a very sort of unknown space and there's a really big lack of data um, in advising us as to what our kids are, are eating. So I looked at sort of dietary quality um, through the use of a, a dietary quality score that was developed over in Europe. I sort of uh, re-validated it for the New Zealand dietary guidelines 
I also looked at nutritional status, so iron and vitamin D status, and I also looked at dietary patterns. So uh, in terms of the use of toddler milk, one of the big concerns is it displaces uh, space for other um, foods and, and sort of displaces dietary patterns of these children. Um, and what we saw was that, that it didn't actually have an effect on dietary patterns um, in terms of overall dietary patterns in children um, from one to two years of age, which you know was contrary to a lot of parents' belief about including it in the diet. And I think some health professionals uh, do worry about that too. And that's definitely warranted. Um, but it's about the amount that they drink. So these children were only having 300 mils a day. So it's moderating that component. Um, we did see that when we looked at dietary quality, even though dietary patterns weren't affected because of the fact that we were using a fortified product, we did see improvements in the quality of diet in terms of uh, nutrient scoring for your at-risk nutrients like your iron and your vitamin D. But it didn't ins like guarantee nutrient adequacy. It didn't guarantee that these children were going to be having the right amount of vitamin D or the right amount of iron every day. I think it helped. I think so in the setting, you know, if these nutrients were uh, deemed to be sort of at-risk nutrients for this a fussy eater, potentially it could be helpful as a uh, method or short-term method, but of trying to get a little bit more on the diet. But like I said, you you know, any of the food-based interventions, and it's very important to stress that it's a, for me, it's a food first approach. That's why I don't think toddler milks are a population-based option. I think it's way better to teach and give families confidence in how to feed their young children with food. Um, and create awareness around the, the requirements for and restrictions for the amount of cow's milk our young children drink. Um, but I think working alongside maybe using toddler milk for a short-term uh, goal whilst introducing, working on introducing those foods into a child's diet that are going to provide those nutrients. So, you know, if you're looking at iron, depending on the dietary pattern the family provides, we as dietitians can identify an iron-rich food that we can work on in terms of introducing a new food into a fussy eater's diet. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, a very targeted approach. It's very individual based. Um, it doesn't guarantee nutrient adequacy. It definitely doesn't stop your child from being at risk of developing iron deficiency or going on to develop iron deficiency anemia. And it doesn't stop your children from developing vitamin D deficiency either. So it's very, for me, it's very short term and could be used as a tool um, to be used alongside sort of in tandem with a dietary approach. Mm -hmm. And finally then, Amy, do you think that fussy eating is a transitional and common issue in children or is it, I think you've really outlined that it's much more complex than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I think depending on where on the spectrum this child is, if it's, uh, you know, just that very classical food neophobia expected as, as they develop um, through those first formative years of life. Um, you know, it's very common. Some children, some, some point someone's child is going to say, no, I don't want it, probably for no reason. Um, and they may want it the next day. So children are all over the show for the first few years in terms of getting um, an idea of what their taste preferences are and, and what they want to include in their diet. So um, yes, it's very common, but I think it's being aware of when it becomes an issue. And I think looking for those red flags that we discussed earlier and actually also ruling out whether or not it's 
something like that avoidant restricted food intake disorder where potentially there's been like a choking episode or something traumatic on a food that's led to the child having this complete outright um, rejection of food that is actually an, an acknowledged medical diagnosis. So ARFID is, you know, that's the extreme end. And then we've got this sort of really expected food neophobia um, that your child will grow out of. Just be patient, which is hard because it's like, I don't know how long it's going to last. Exactly. So um, it's definitely, um, it is common, but it can also be very complex. And the complex ones that we run the risk of it going on into adolescence, potentially playing a role in increasing your risk of developing an eating disorder um, and obviously your relationship with food going into your adult life. Um, There are still picky adults. Mm, that's right they just are in charge of their food choices so no <laughs> yeah. one's getting frustrated that they're not eating yeah, a particular right. food that they've been offered so that's true yeah I think I've just learned so much and I you know <laughs> I've never worked with kids um but you know adults can sometimes be challenging enough but that whole mm. extra level of not being able to as easily communicate with children as well. So it just adds another yeah. level of complexity around that as well. Yeah. When I mean, you're mainly working with parents, aren't you? Yeah. And getting well, buy-in right. from so parents. Can, yeah, exactly. You've got that, that dynamic happening. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and everything that you've, all your research in this space. It's, um, as you said, there's very few people doing it. So it's great that you're able to, to fill this niche and, you know, really it's such an important area of research and clinical practice for dietitians this early, as we know, early life nutrition really sets us up for the future. So thank you for being in this space and doing the work that you do and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me along. And thank you so much to Nutrition for supporting today's Dietitian Connection podcast episode. And we hope that you'll join us on a future Dietitian Connection episode. Thanks for listening, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, we would really appreciate if you could leave a review for us. Leaving a review actually means the podcast gets to more dietitians and it can only elevate our profession if we work together. So please hit that review button. Tell us and other people what you thought about this episode. Another way to share your learnings from this episode and keep the conversation going is to take a screenshot of your phone screen, add your message and share it on social media. Don't forget to tag us at Dietitian Connection so we can share it with our following of over 30,000. Tell us what you learned and what future topics you'd like us to cover. If you'd like to access the show notes, they are available at dietitianconnection.com forward slash podcasts. Dietitian Connection is a global community and we offer free professional development, job opportunities, resources and connections. We're committed to bringing dietitians together so we can create more impact and elevate our profession. And you can easily become a Dietitian Connection member for free by signing up at dietitianconnection.com. Dot com.